seated. As you're taking your seats, you can turn to 1 Peter 4. We'll be in verses 12 through 15. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 15. Oh, and kids, you guys are dismissed to your classes if you didn't go yet. You should know the drill by now, kids, so there's no excuse if I didn't. Yeah. Uh, real quick, as the kids are going and as you're turning, uh, there is one announcement um, that I wanted to share with you guys. Uh, we are uh, well aware that uh, whenever you put two people together, you will have three opinions. And uh, that happens in life all the time. Uh, one of the ways that happens is in marriage especially. As you get two people together, two sinners, and if you're saved, two sinners saved by grace, but you're two, still two sinners, that uh, issues and situations will arise and Marriage is not something that is easy, all right? Um, and so uh, one of the things that our desire here is to encourage healthy marriages because as the marriage goes, so goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the culture. And there is not one thing that Satan hates more than marriage. If you haven't seen it, we're trying to redefine, redo this, redo that, all these other things because marriage literally, as Ephesians tells us, is a picture of Christ in the church. So Satan will do everything he can to destroy that, to distort that. Now, um, I am not the Pope, so I do not have the power that has been invested upon the Pope by just the random Catholic world. I stand in just here with the power that the Scripture has given us. And so here's the thing that I'd strongly love to encourage you. Uh, coming up uh, in January on the 25th, uh, we, that's on a Wednesday, uh, we're encouraging you guys if this is open to anyone who is married, it doesn't matter how short you've been married, how long you've been married, even if you're maybe just contemplating marriage, all right? Uh, we would encourage you, we have a series called The Art of Marriage that we would love to be going through this with you. Now, I want to help just clear the air. Do not wait until you have issues and then attend. It's great to do things ahead of time, all right? Because let me explain to you, you all have issues, you're just denying the fact that you have marital issues. All right, and so what I'd love to do is encourage all of you, all right, so don't sit there and say, I think this couple should go to it. The answer is yes, you should go to it as well, all right, because these are things that Satan wants to attack you. Satan wants to divide you, all right, and by God's grace, as we walk through this, uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the back that if sign up and then we'll figure out how we need to go about it, um, but we're just strongly encouraging you guys to go through this. Um, almost to the point where I'd love to like just check off everybody's name off the list, like have you gone through this, because we really strongly encourage you to do this, because this will give you opportunities to have conversations that you would probably not normally have. All right, if any one of you in your couple is an avoider, guess what you were avoiding? Conversations you should probably have. And so these will give you an opportunity for you and your spouse to walk along through this together. Uh, that being said, I can't encourage you more to do that. There's a sign-up sheet in the back, and we can figure out the, inf the specifics after that, but we're trying to start them January 25th. That's a Wednesday night. So let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our time. Dear Holy Father, there's been so many things that have already been said, so many things have already been done. Help us now to be focused on your truth and your word. May we be free from the distractions that so quickly cause us to lose focus. May we have a singular focus on what you have to say for us. Help us. We desperately need it. In your name we pray. Amen. If you've ever had the privilege of running a race, 
you will understand this. If you've ever been in one of those, whether it's been on a track, whether it's been on a 5K or something like this, if you've ever been at the start of a race, you know it does not take any skill to start the race because there's a whole lot of people that can start a race. It really matters if you can finish the race. And one reason why I love the sport of running is because it exposes a person's character, especially in the area of self-discipline. Because as I like to call it, running, actually real running, not running because someone is chasing you, but actually going out to run, running is a lesson in paced suffering. Because as you pace yourself, you're trying to say, what level of suffering can I maintain over the next distance here? Because I need to save enough suffering to the end when I need to kick it in to actually get even real suffering. So by the time I cross the finish line, I have suffered to the maximum amount that I can suffer. And then the joy is I finally finish and now my suffering is over and I'm excited that I'm no longer suffering. And some of you go, and that sounds like fun. And we would go, yes, it actually is fun to push yourself in those ways. But the character is revealed by a person in this pace suffering when they realize at the beginning of the race that you realize real quick there's no chance of me actually winning this thing. And then the real character comes out. Am I still going to push myself or am I going to coast when that prize may not be there that I thought it was going to be there and the self-discipline starts to be exposed. Because running is a good indication of how much you can put up with suffering. Uh, That's why if I would encourage you, if you have kids that are runners and things like that, I would encourage you to encourage them that I don't care where you finished, I care more about did you do your best and did you suffer to your fullest amount during this time. So with that being said, with that in mind, I want to turn to 1 Peter here 4.12. Because in my Bible, it has a little heading called Suffering as a Christian. And we're going to talk about suffering today. And I always like to say, and I hope this sermon is not so bad that it gives you a chance to suffer. But let's read what the text says in front of us. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let, not, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. So we're going to spend some time here diving into this text. Uh, the title of the sermon that I've titled it is Faithful Christian Living in Trials. Now, before we go any further, I want to make sure we review in our minds who this book is written to. This book is written to an audience that is about ready to have some of the worst persecution poured out on them from the Roman world. They will literally, and by the time this book is circulated, maybe one generation, you will have people that are being killed in the Colosseum. You will have families being destroyed. You will have homes being burned. You will have people coming into gatherings like this, and the leaders will literally be taken out and to be destroyed and killed, and the church is going to be fledgling, looking, going, what do we do? The church will go underground for a while, but the church will flourish. And Peter is writing this to a group of people. So the importance of this, the importance of why Peter's doing this, because you may be going, Tim, it feels like all we're hearing about is suffering and hardships and all these things are going to come through 1 Peter, because what 1 Peter is teaching us, and this is what Peter is teaching us through the Holy Spirit, is this. You need to know, 
You need to have a firm grasp on understanding suffering and the theology of suffering before the issue comes. If you wait for the issue to arise and then you're trying to figure out your theology, disaster will happen. The mind and the heart must be fully convinced of certain things so when things happen, you are not shaken. It's the reason literally why in using the sporting analogies, like if you were teaching a kid in, in running, you will get to the point where you feel like you can't do any more. And when that point happens, you need to dig deeper for an inside force that is going to cause you to go even further than what you thought you couldn't do. And so we train for that. So when that suffering comes, you actually are able to withstand the suffering because you have already truly believed in your heart the things now that you have to now play out in reality in life in front of you. So what Peter is doing here, he's telling them, and a little bit of review, Peter has said, listen, the end is at hand, live this way. And remember in review, think clearly, he says, because the end is at hand. Show self-control because the end is at hand. Love one another. Be generous with your home and all the things God has given you. You've been given a gift, and that gift is to be used as a channel of blessing for others, all for the glory of God. And now that he has said that, remember, he broke out into the doxology of that thing. Glory to God forever and ever and ever. Amen. And as if he takes a... And here's what he says next. Notice the first word in verse 12. Beloved. It is almost as if he's saying to this group of people... now. As I'm reading this through this, this is what I had seemed like he's trying to wrap his arms as a hug and he's saying, now beloved, loved by God. And it's almost it's his way of almost like in a fatherly, shepherdly thing, wrapping his arms around these people saying, beloved. If he were to be saying this out loud in my mind, I feel like his tone of his voice has just changed to a, a fatherly type of tone. Because here's what he says. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So when we go through this, we're going to see here, point number one, that these tests of trials. Peter reminds them not to be surprised, because if the Bible tells you not to do something, it's because guess what you're going to struggle with? Being that, all right? So... What's going to happen, Peter's saying, is listen, these things are going to come. Do not be surprised when they happen. And we're going to find out why we shouldn't be surprised when they happen, but he says don't be surprised. Fiery trials are coming, and they're going to persecute you, as the text will tell us, for the sake of being a Christian. Now, real quick, Peter has talked to them already, so turn back to 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, when he talks about these fiery trials. The purpose of these fiery trials... 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So here again, remember these trials. Now he's talking about fiery trials. Back there he's talking about various trials. Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, back to our text we were talking about, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see the purpose of these trials are to test. Another way of saying the purpose of these trials are to verify what's happening in a person's life. And you ask yourself, well, how do you pass the test? If they are to test or to verify your faith, the answer then is to actually to believe the promises of God. And that is seen by faith. That you have to understand 
that Romans 8.28 principle, that God, for those of us who are in Christ, God is working all things together for your good. And, I, and I, it's easy to say that right now when you're not going through that all and you look at the all and you go, boy, that means all trials that I'm going through are literally for my good. And even at the moment you're going this, I don't know, have any clue how this is for my good. But remember, we have not been left without a testimony. What is the testimony we know? Immediately, our mind should go back to guys like Joseph and his own life, where you're looking at the Joseph's ups and downs and those same things that God is working out for his good. And he looks at this guy, how is there any good in this? My brothers literally threw me in a pit to be dead, and they didn't even throw me in a pit to kill me. It was three days I was supposed to die. There was no water there. They left me there. And then a traveling group comes by, and they're like, you know what? Let's not just ruin killing our, our brother. At least make a profit off of it. And they sold me as a slave. I mean, they could have sold me as a little bit better than that. But they sold me as a slave, and now I'm down here. Things look up. Now we're down. Things look up again. Now we're down. And all of these things are played out in Joseph's life where he's able to look and say, you know, you meant it for evil. But God, whose hand is over all of these things, he meant it for good, to save many. And remember, as we think and look at these fiery trials, John 15, 20 reminds us, and I'll just share with you the text there. John 15, 20, Jesus says, he says to his disciples, listen, the servant is no greater than the master. If they persecuted me, guess what they're going to do? They're going to persecute you. So these trials, these persecution trials are coming to us and are coming at us as back in 1 Peter here. Let's just read 4.4. 4. 1 Peter 4.4 4 reminds us when in verse 3 when it talks about all the ways that the Gentiles used to do and they try to ask you to join them in 4.4. 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So now... It's interesting, we got a lot of surprised people, right? You got the Gentiles surprised that you're not doing the same thing that you used to do. And now we have Peter saying, don't be surprised when you don't do the same things that you used to do and you associate with Christ that persecution is going to come. And so what we see here is this tension that we're not supposed to be surprised when suffering comes. Our attitude is not to be one of going, I can't believe this. But what is our attitude supposed to be? And notice the text tells us here in verse 13. So don't be surprised if something strange are happening to you, but verse 13, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's suffering. This rejoice, this word here, rejoice means to praise. That's why Christians are to be known. Point number two, that they're to be called rejoicing Christians. Because the world, when suffering comes, doesn't rejoice. They complain, they murmur, all these other things. But the Christian has been literally commanded to rejoice. Paul literally goes on and say, rejoice and everything rejoice. I command you to rejoice. Guess what we're supposed to be? Rejoicing. This idea of rejoicing is the idea that carries with it praise. But what are we supposed to rejoice in? Rejoice in shared suffering. Think about that for a moment. The shared suffering they rejoice in, and as we rejoice in the shared suffering, the text goes on to say that as we rejoice and be glad when the glory of God is revealed. So I want to spend some time breaking this down. Those who suffer, and they suffer in the sufferings of Christ, share in the glory of Christ. This is what Peter is telling us, that those who suffer in the sufferings of Christ share in the glory of Christ. And so you say, so what does that mean to suffer in the sufferings of Christ? 
This does not mean that we need to go and nail ourselves to a cross and do some type of religious event that somehow is going to cause me to suffer, or we go to steps and we kneel on them and whip ourselves as we're going up. That is not what the text is telling us. What the text is telling us is this, that you are to live in such a way that when people look at your lives, they see Christ. And when they see him, guess what they're going to respond? The same they responded to Christ, they will persecute you because they see Christ in you. And this is something the world and the Bible has told us that the world hates. So this suffering is coming because others see Christ in you and they can't stand it. And so they go after you. They malign you to ridicule you. This time on earth is marked by suffering. The followers of Christ will be those who suffer. But the suffering will be replaced with the glory of God. Again, as we think through this, the suffering that we replace one day with the glory of God, we look at our great example that Peter tells us all the time. Look to Christ. What do we know about Christ? He was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as the Bible even says, we hid our faces from him. He was despised and rejected by man. And he was led to the cross in a humiliating death, all to do what? To bring God glory and everything he did. And if he did that, that is what the followers of Christ are called to do as well. We will suffer. We will have these things if we, if we, align with Christ in our lives, the world will see it attack it. Now, when we think about rejoicing and suffering, we rejoice in suffering in order that God gets the glory. Because when we have our eyes focused on God and God alone, we see that it is Him and Him alone that is our reward in heaven. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Remember, Peter, the author of this, has sat through these teachings. And in Matthew chapter 5, we have the great Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is standing on the Mount. Imagine why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he is speaking to his disciples. And listen to what he says. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Peter, hearing this, Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's some lines in the book of Peter that I am sure without a doubt, as much as Tim can be sure without a doubt, that as Peter was writing them, cost him a couple of things. What I mean by cost him, I'm saying this, Imagine writing this. The, what does the church know about Peter? Standing in a group of people, and someone said, Hey, weren't you one of those guys that hung out with Jesus? That was all that was needed, and he said what? Nope, I don't know him. Then a nobody in the world at that time, a slave girl comes up who has the power to do what? nothing, and says, I think you were, I think I saw you. And he denies and starts cursing and swearing upon himself, I don't know anything of this man. And here's what he's saying when he's writing 1 Peter here. Suffering's going to come as you align yourself with Christ. Suffering is going to come. And Peter's first opportunity to do that, how well did he do? 
No, not well at all. But what do we see? This man who denied God's existence says, by the time he's writing 1 Peter, a completely, utterly changed man who says, don't be surprised. Like, I was surprised one day. Like, I was standing there and someone said, hey, I think you're one of his followers. And it took him more than by surprise. And even though Jesus had even said to him, what? You're going to deny me, but I pray that it's not going to totally destroy you, but you're going to deny me. And then Peter was really surprised when it happened. And now what he's saying to people, don't let this shake you. And here's why. And literally, you can almost take 1 Peter um, and take Matthew 5, 11 through 12 and just spread that out throughout the whole book of 1 Peter. Because it's all over the place. Don't, be, don't revile when people revile. Don't do this. Don't do this. They're going to be surprised. And all these other things, the suffering is coming. So, back to 1 Peter here. On, on your way back, stop at verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 9 of 1 Peter. So, if we are not to be surprised, we're supposed to follow Jesus' example. How do we rejoice when this happens? I mean, we, we don't live, I want to make sure we're clear on this. We don't live in a world, and the, the Bible never commands us. There was a shirt at one time that says, the beatings will continue until morale improves. All right, that is not the Christian walk. All right, the Christian walk is not, you're going to suffer until you like it. All right, that is not what Peter is calling us to do here. What Peter is saying is, as you align with Christ, what's going to happen is people will chafe against that. They will go against you. You will... You will be mocked, you will be maligned, you will be suffered. Suffering will come, and your response to all of this. Here's what I say, do not repay evil with evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, 1 Peter 3, 9, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. This is what we've been called to, is to bless. And so literally, as Peter is walking through these, with the, of believers, his last closing, as he's starting to wrap up the book, he's going to remind them, don't be surprised, suffering is coming, and here's what you do. You focus on the promises of God. Because as you focus on the promises of God, this can be true about you. And you'll see this in your notes. When a believer rejoices in suffering, and in turn, blesses, they are demonstrating that their hope and treasure is in Christ and not the world around them. Because we're going to get to what he's going to talk about here in a second. Because when a believer rejoices in suffering and then turns it and bless, that does not mean that when the suffering is happening, that does not mean that all the believers are standing there saying, this is wonderful. Our pastor just got eaten by lions. That is wonderful. All right? This is not what he's talking about. But what they're saying is these things cause us to realize that our pastor is far better places than He's not literally there, dead in the Colosseum. He is with Christ, and we can rejoice in that, that his suffering is now over. But how we respond to those things shows us where our treasure and where our heart is. Now, before we move to verse 14 and 15, I want to pause here for a second. I'm going to chase a small little rabbit trail here. Because we've been talking, this text is, in, is talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. The principles that we learn from here. But these principles that we learn for suffering for the cause of Christ also are principles that we learn, what about those normal sufferings in life? And I'll give you an example by this. Ever since the fall, our relationship, man and relationship between God and man has been really major issues. And so we needed someone to reconcile us, which is Jesus Christ. But because of that break here, we're also going to have breaks here. 
between man-to-man issue, and there's going to be suffering. We suffer because we live in a sinful world. Broken relationships and all of these things happen. And they happen, one of the things, especially too, since we were talking about that art of marriage thing, here's what happens. And this is what happens in any relationship. I'll pick on marriage right now. You get married, and when you get married, what you, what you are shown by this is that you are incredibly selfish. Because your marriage would not have any problems if it wasn't for the other person. Because in your mind, you're a really big deal and your way is the best way. And then all of a sudden, somebody else joins you and is not leaving you, hanging out there, and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. I thought my way was the best way, and then they have a different way of doing things. What are we going to do in this? And then all of a sudden, here's what starts to happen in marriage. Here is the lie, the lie that was at Satan in the garden. You, God said do it this way, but no, 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 you can be this way. And so what happens in marriage is this. This sin of pride spills over into a lack of contentment. And so in your mind, you start to hear and you start to think that, you know what, my marriage is the problem, out there is better. And so you start thinking that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. You start thinking all of these things that are just not even God-honoring as only if, only if I had married this person, only if I had done this, or only if I had done that. And you think that all of these things, these fleeting pleasures, are going to be satisfying. And here's one thing to just encourage you with. If you're not content with what you have, you will never be content with what you think is going to bring about contentment. Because there's the same, there's a problem there in front of you. It's you that is going to follow. And what we think is this, we think maybe if I get a different model, or maybe if I go over here and do this, or maybe if my marriage was this way, and before you know, you say, God has given you this individual to live with, to love with all your heart, whether you feel like it or not at the moment, because love is not a feeling you fall into or fall out of. And you can sit there and say, but Tim, you don't understand being married to this person, because you're not. All right, and here's what I would tell you. God does not make mistakes. In His sovereign plan, He has placed you together. Uh, This is why, and because I've been... For some reason, somebody rang a bell and everybody decided to get married this this summer. But because going through all of these premaritals, all right, I try to remind them there's a covenant that you made. And this covenant that you make is between God and man... And, it's, and it literally lists all of them, for better or for worse. But guess what everybody thinks when you get in the worst part? You're like, this wasn't what I signed up for. I'm like, you literally said that. You know, and guess what you're dealing with? The worst right now. And so these are the things that I would encourage you guys through this to not run from these things until you say, God, teach me. Teach me to learn that even through the suffering of a relationship that is just could not even be something you sit there and go, I don't know where God's going to get glory from this. Know that God can bring glory even from the death of his saints and from anything that God can still get glory. So as I always like to say, there's a term to your marriage covenant that stops is when death do you part. And until death do you part, do not part because where you're trying to part to, you will find that the same problems follow you wherever you go. That's its own talk. All right, let's finish this text up. Point number three, a blessing and a warning. What we're going to see here is two, two things back to back, and I want to spend just a short little time here in closing. So in 1 Peter, um, here you see in verse 14, it starts off as saying, if you are insulted... 
for the name of Christ. Now, real quick, 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4, again, is remembering they're going to tell you, you're going to ask you to do these things, you're not going to do them, and then you're going to get insulted, you're going to get maligned, and all these things. This is Peter wrapping that up. You will be insulted when you don't do things, you'll be mocked, you'll be maligned for this. He says you are blessed because the Spirit of God rests on you. So again, Peter is reminding them that for those of us who are persecuted for the name of Christ, we should be ecstatic. And the reason why we're ecstatic is because they see Christ in us. And that should be something that strengthens your faith. Now, though, there's a warning here. And the warning is this. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And I want to go, where are you going to go? What does this have to do with suffering? Because those sound like some random things there. All right, if I was going to talk to you about suffering, I wouldn't say, now listen, in your suffering, don't murder somebody, don't steal something, don't do this. And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? But again, this is what can happen sometimes if we forget the, the full concept. So first of all, the principle of suffering that comes about because of sin is not suffering for Jesus Christ. Let's just call that across the board. And here's what he's not saying. Peter is not saying this. Listen, just don't get caught. All right? He's not saying when you do these things, don't get caught and go to jail because you know that stuff. No, he's not saying that at all. Here's what he's saying. Remember, he's saying the end is at hand. And what did we talk about at the beginning? The end is at hand, that there are going to be people that are going to be imprisoned. There's going to be people whose homes are going to be burned. The whole leadership of churches and even predominant families are going to be destroyed. All of these things are going to happen, and anger is going to dwell within the church body. What do you think people are going to do when they see their loved ones being killed in the Colosseum? What do you think they're going to be tempted to do? When you see that soldier that drug off your dad to be killed, and you see him standing there in the corner, and you're standing there behind him, what is the temptation going to be? To murder him. What about when all of your stuff has been taken from you and it has all been given to everybody else and they're just using it and abusing it and all these other things and all of a sudden you don't have food or you don't have all these other things. Well, listen, if they're stealing from me, guess what I'm going to be tempted to do? Steal it back. And then he just, or all evil conduct as well. 1 Peter 2, 12, just listen. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You are not the giver of life. You are not the taker of life. All the things God has given you, He has given you. They are His. You don't need to steal. And then we get down to this last concept here, which is interesting, because it goes, all right, murder, stealing, doing evil, and then meddling? Like, really? Like, meddlers? How does that get up there with murders? Most of you do not, I, at least, I don't know about you, but I don't associate someone who murdered somebody with a meddler, all right? And you're like, what's going on here with this? A meddler, another way of putting it, is someone who does not mind their own business. Someone who is so caught up with other people's gossip and stuff that they're not really focused on what they need to be focused on. I really do believe Peter is ending this. Now, I don't know his mind, but I, I, it seems to me that this fits. That Peter is reminding us that we need to care about what we really need to care about. The glory of God. 
that when we are earthly focused, we get caught up in the local town gossip. If you're a sojourner moving from one town to the next, do you really get caught up in town gossip? No, because you don't really have a whole lot of, if you want to call it, a whole lot of um, skin in the game there. Because, okay, that's nice. You're moving on. When we meddle, we are not doing this because we care about the other person for their spiritual walk and their growth. All we care about is, let me hear the local gossip. And Peter says, this is, going to, this is going to destroy the church just as someone who would murder, steal, or do evil things. Gossip can destroy even faster than anything else. Even can destroy and rip apart families. Um, one of the things I loved when I was in leadership at a school, because at schools, oh, you love to hear the the latest gossip about things. I would try to remind people, you're on a need-to-know basis and there's a reason you don't need to know. You don't know, all right? You're on a need-to-know and you don't know for a reason. Because our main focus should be Christ and Christ alone. So when we think about the suffering, and wrapping this up here, what did we learn today? We learned this, that when we suffer for the sake of Christ, that is a glorious thing. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a glorious thing because it tells us again that people are seeing us and they're seeing Christ. And last but not least, the challenge is to live in such a way that others see Christ in you. If you want to turn in your songbooks to uh, 377 there, turn there real quick. And there is a... uh, Oh, I didn't bring mine up. But anyway, if you're looking at it, 377. Yeah, I'll grab one here real quick. I just want to take you through here what the hymn writer wrote, which I thought was very well put together, even for this. The leaning on the everlasting arms of Christ. Verse 2 here. Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way. And how do we, what is the sweetness of it? Because we're, our minds and our hearts are focused on God and God alone, we can literally lean into those arms that never fail. Because what is going to fail us? Relationships. Everything in this world is going to fail us. But when we're leaning on His arms and His arms alone, only then can we sing, we're safe and secure from all alarms. All right? That does not mean that we don't die. But what do we know? Our soul is safe in His hands and His hands alone. So as you sing this, I want you to really spend some time thinking of these, these great words that have been put together in poetic form to us. Because the last one, so what have I to dread? What have I to fear? Because we're leaning on His arms. So we should not be surprised when suffering comes. Because we're leaning on His arms. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank You again for who You are. Thank You again that... As suffering comes into our lives, whether it is because we are a follower of Christ or it is because we are living in a sinful world, may our hearts and our minds never waver from the truth of who You are. And remember that You are working all things for our good and for Your glory. We ask these things in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.